the land remembers the touch of the creator's fingertips at the dawn of creation. Mountains sculpted from colliding tectonic plates and valleys carved from an eon's worth of living water, eroding up-hewn stone, prepare the planet for habitation. Like mother's womb, the earth's body expands and cracks and contains life inside of herself. The land remembers the imprint of the past. Evidence of tropical seas and marshy swamps lie deep beneath our feet. Bones of distant ancestors etched into rock and patched tightly into dirt make up the Earth's oldest family photo album to date. The land remembers the pulse of the water cycle. Rainfall flows through tributary veins and into vital arteries, which empty into the heart of the ocean only to be recirculated back into the veins again. Pumping with purpose, life is made possible. What you just heard is the first portion of The Land Remembers, written and read by Jordan Luther. This episode, his poem will help us continue to explore the connection between bodies and the land. Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're following up our last episode by talking about things that our society has deemed unworthy of purpose. Weeds, trash, food waste, things that often fall to the wayside. We'll hear from someone who's been chasing waste since they were a kid, someone who has turned their backyard into a wildlife refuge, and someone who sees God as a weed. In our last episode, we were in Chicago for just a few hours, just long enough to have a conversation with environmental justice wise woman Veronica Kyle. And now, after an overnight train ride that left us a little blurry in the eyes, we've arrived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Steel City. I remember a big newspaper article in the probably early 80s that talked about all of the heavy metals in our soils. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and we joked about eating cadmium balls. You know, our tomatoes were cadmium balls and stuff like that. And because it was This is Myrna. My name is Myrna Newman. I'm the executive director of Allegheny Cleanways. We're in Myrna's office at Allegheny Cleanways on the north side of Pittsburgh. It's an unusually hot, sunny day for mid-October, and sunlight spills in through the windows. We're joined by Myrna's dog, who's curled up next to her chair. Uh, well, I grew up on a farm outside of Pittsburgh, and so I was intimately connected to the, to the earth um, in ways that I probably didn't even realize that I was connected until I got a little older and could reflect on that and, and the influence that it had on me. But I grew up um, fairly poor, too, and in a log house. Um, with an outhouse, you know, so like there was, you know, multiple layers of kind of being connected to the, to the earth. And it wasn't exactly idyllic, says Myrna. It was tough. They didn't make enough money from the farm to sustain themselves, so her father had to work in the steel mills. 
the very industry that was polluting the Pittsburgh soil. Um, Pittsburgh, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, had a reputation of being dirty and, you know, polluted, and, and it was. And even when, um, even when I was growing up, it was still had that reputation. A lot of it had to do with the steel industry that my dad worked in. You know, that was the juxtaposition of, you know, he wore the irony is he worked in this one industry that was completely polluting the environment and then we had this farm. It seems that pollution and waste have followed Myrna her whole life. Or maybe it's that Myrna has sought them out. After moving away from home, she worked in Utah doing soil reclamation work with soil that had been contaminated with heavy metals, just like the dirt of her childhood. And when she moved back to Pittsburgh 11 years ago, she found herself at the Allegheny Cleanways office, in part because a truckload of asphalt shingles had just been dumped at her family farm. Okay, so your mom still lived on the farm that you grew up on? Yeah, Okay. and still does. Okay. And someone had blocked it with the asphalt shingles. She's like, well, how am I supposed to clean that up? You know, she was, I guess, 70, in her early 70s, but still, you know, she was healthy and robust, but it was a truckload of asphalt yeah. shingles. Like, what, and then what do you do with it? Right. Uh, you know. The mission of Allegheny Cleanways is to engage and empower people to eliminate illegal dumping and littering. And so, after eventually becoming the executive director in 2011, Myrna has spent the last eight years learning more about illegal dump sites like this one all over Pittsburgh and neighboring Allegheny County. The Allegheny Cleanways team has regular cleanups on both land and in the rivers, and also puts a heavy emphasis on education, because one of their philosophies is that dumping waste has important social implications. With like the dump sites that you um, do cleanups at, are they? Is there like a trend of like where they are in the city? Absolutely, yeah. Um, they are almost exclusively in poor, uh, disenfranchised neighborhoods, um, and that and it. It's hard to say what, you know, what the cause of that is because those poor disenfranchised neighborhoods also have a lot of vacancy. You know, it's a chicken and egg sort of thing. There, you know, there's, and vacancy and causes other forms of blight, um, dilapidated buildings, boarded up buildings. Um, so litter and dumping just is one more of those. And while there aren't usually direct health effects like there are with air and water pollution, Dump sites do contribute to a general atmosphere of neglect. There's something intrinsic in all of us that responds to the cleanliness of our environment, said Myrna. It influences our feelings of security, the affection we have for a place, and even our desire to spend time outside. Whether deliberate or not, it sends a signal that um, the people that live there don't care or that no one cares or that it's not going to make that big of a difference if you just throw this one sofa over here because look at this place. And then that compounds itself. Because once there's one piece of trash, says Myrna, it's much easier for others to toss in that same place. Out of sight, out of mind. But for Myrna and the others who spend their time cleaning up, this is a frustrating mentality because someone else is always at the other end. We throw it away, we put it on the curb. Whether it's just putting it on the curbside and someone takes it away, it's, it's away. But there's no away. <laughs> like there's, it doesn't exist. It goes somewhere. Um, whether it goes to a landfill and then that becomes, you know, then whose problem is that a hundred years from now? You know, right. it, it just, it doesn't go away. We asked Myrna if we could see some of the dump sites for ourselves. And so a few minutes later... Myrna was telling us that hillsides are the worst. Yes. Yeah, I guess it makes so, sense places here. like this, right? I have everything here. And this, 
This is interesting. Well, this, this is one of the frustrating things that I don't understand. If you look at this right here. That's Al Chernov, one of the crew leaders from Allegheny Cleanways. He drove us to a dump site just minutes away from the office. Here, there's a, a bed spring. There's a yeah. piece of furniture from somebody's house. Uh-huh. Old computer case. Yeah. Old printer. TV. TVs. Electronic, oh, electronic waste and... We're standing on the edge of a road on a steep wooded hillside, looking out over the spread of trash. Along with all the household waste, there were piles and piles of their biggest nemesis, construction debris. And probably we start looking around in the neighborhood. Somebody has a new fence. This is their old fence. Two by fours, old sheds, toilets, and doors. You know, an old toilet or an old sink, we'll get somebody got a new bathroom. And there's their old bathroom thrown over the hillside. Of course, for someone like Al, who spends his days cleaning up the mess, it's hard to sympathize with the people who do this. But he does have some insights into the problem. And like I said, part of it is, is economic, but also part of it is laziness and fast practice. The economic part is, you know, the city really doesn't make it easy for you to throw away, you know, bulk stuff. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, you have a couch, you leave it on the curb, and you might get a fine for it. Throw it over the hillside, nobody cares. Right. Some things like TVs and computers, the city won't pick up, which can be problematic for residents who don't know what to do with it. The way Pittsburgh decided to combat that problem was, I'll put a sticker on it. You'll get in trouble. So you know what you do? You put it on your neighbor's lawn. So then nothing ever happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until somebody tosses it over hillside and I pick it up. Oh, yeah. So. As we sit on the hillside looking over the parkway, Al told us more about the history of waste in Pittsburgh. At the height of steel production in the city, huge amounts of the byproduct, called slag, were dumped on the hillsides, transforming the topography of the area over time. Whole sections of the city are actually built on these slag heaps. Al pointed out a hill across the way that didn't exist 200 years ago, not far from where we'd been standing a few minutes earlier. His point, why would you care about trash on a hillside if the hillside itself is waste from a steel mill? People have been doing it for so long here in Pittsburgh that it's almost standard practice. You know, with the terrible past that Pittsburgh's had with giant steel mills and yeah. streetlights coming on in the afternoon because it was so dark because of the smoke, yeah. do you really, uh, does your heart go out for a couple tires over a hillside? No. Right. But, you know, the city's trying to turn around. And... and sometimes, when he goes to a neighborhood to clean up a dump site, the residents get a little confused. Who is this guy coming into their neighborhood, and why is he picking up the trash there? Is he a new property owner? Does he actually want the trash? The two biggest questions I get are, um, are you from the city? And did you buy this piece of land and what are you gonna do with it? And it's like, no, I'm not from the city. And no, I'm not a developer who's gonna rebuild your whole neighborhood and all that. Right. Who sent you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Nobody, I saw all this garbage on the side of the road, that's why I stopped. And then, then they're in silence. Because people are amazed that, you know, somebody comes into their neighborhood and cares. But it's a work in progress. And part of the frustration for Al is that they often find themselves cleaning up the same hillsides. We visited a place called Gershon on the next hill over. Two years ago, Al said, they had that place cleaned spick and span. And within six months, it was worse than before. And this actually doesn't look bad. I mean, think when, when, it's, when the leaves are out, this place looks beautiful. Come back. Come back in uh, December, January, when there's no leaves, and you'll drive down that parkway and you will see all this. Right. And it looks horrible. Everything we saw, 
Um, everything we just saw from that last spot is literally right across the way there. Oh, really? Okay. And, and vice versa. If there was no leaves on the trees and we were standing there, you'd say, what is all that? Right. Oh, that's Gershon. <laughs> I don't throw my trash over a hillside, but I think about the number of times I've sent something I don't want to the thrift store. It's like, mm, what do I do with a spare sock? Well, I'm sure the thrift store could use it. Out of sight, out of mind, right? It makes me wonder what we would do if we were actually confronted with the waste we produce. If we couldn't just send it down the garbage disposal or set it out on the curb. We're back in Myrna's office now. I'm just curious to know what makes a trash dump illegal. Is it the location mm. or the content? That's a really good question. And one we, you know, in a philosophical way we debate all the time. Because, the, you know, the pure and simple answer to that is that it's in an area that hasn't been designated as a landfill. What makes a legal landfill legal is that it has a lot of safety. It meets some pretty stringent, really, Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, requirements. But it's more complicated than that, Myrna said. Her team returns to this question on a more philosophical level quite often. So Evan, our boat captain, when we go out on the rivers, like the, for a long time that was a, a stumbling block for him. If he just felt like, oh, we're doing is moving it from an illegal dump, you know, dumping area to a legal one, you know, mm-hmm. really, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And in response to that, we have kind of tried to talk to people also about consumption. You know, the bigger issue really is we have too much stuff. <laughs> And we manufacture too much and, you know, talk about a societal shift or a, you know, coming up against a brick wall, that's it. You know, that's, that's the bottom line for a lot of the, the issues that you're talking about is consumption. Myrna went on to explain that the brick wall we're up against is constructed of some deeply ingrained beliefs around what it means to be an American. Even Mennonites, Myrna said, people like us who are known for being frugal, are not beyond this conversation. Uh, you know, this room alone, it's loaded with stuff that has a fairly limited lifespan, you know? So there's that, you know? So like kind of educating people on that edu- and and pushing for, you know, cradle to cradle kind of legislation or, you know, pushing people to make things that will last or that can be completely recycled, you know? That it's cradle to cradle, there's no grave. You know, you make something and the component parts become something else again. That's the ultimate goal. The land remembers the pitter-patter of tiny footsteps the hopscotch of a young robin that leaves a trail of kisses along the earth's blushing face. Crickets, centipedes, and other creepy crawlies find comfort in the many mansions lying on the forest floor. The land remembers the source of her energy. A solar dance ignites chain reactions among our chlorophyll companions. Fire from sleepy logs releases hundreds of years worth of sunlight and warmth. The land remembers all pilgrims who pay homage to their ancestral homes, salmon swimming upstream, pregnant with potential, 
deliver their hope for the future in the exact place where they were born. The same as their parents and their parents' parents, stretching millennia until time itself erodes in the river's current. Our next stop takes us to someone who remembers the land in her own way. By going out of her way to make sure those many mansions lying on the forest floor can exist and thrive in her own backyard. See a mixture of formal and informal. Okay, you're on tape now, Andy. Okay, Stay hi, now. great. Um, and in the end, it all becomes gently messy, just because that's the way we roll. Yeah. <laughs> this is Wendy Chapodick. We've met Wendy before. She's the one who graciously welcomed us to Bluffton, Ohio, and drove us around to all of our interviews, and then fed us, and then gave us coffee and tea, and then let us use her car. Oh, all of this self-seeded, actually. Oh, nice. All of the flowers, the herbs, the radishes. The lettuce has been really good at self-seeding. That's so cool. I'm trying to let the plants kind of move around the garden and come up where they come and sort of work with it. <laughs> when we first arrived at her home, she showed us around her backyard turned wildlife refuge. She calls it a Noah's garden, after a book by the same title published by Sarah Stein in 1993. I found a bunch of this in my woods. I was like, what? What? Like, is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? Like, I had no idea. Yeah, it's like lights. Wow. It freaked me out, and it was lying on top of The subtitle of Noah's Garden is Restoring the Ecology of Our Own Backyards. It presents an alternative to the carbon copy nature of suburban yards by recommending plants and habitats that invite wildlife rather than destroy it. And for Wendy, that change has meant that she's always discovering new things about her own backyard. Whoa, it's like really light. So it looks like a dried out water hyacinth. Oh, is that like, what it well, is? that's exactly what it is. Oh. It's clear that Wendy gets a lot of joy from her garden. So when we sat down to talk with her, it was one of the first things we asked about. Yeah, I love my garden because to me, plants are the plants are my friends. Like I literally have a relationship with the plants that I'm growing. So when I think about the most exciting thing I could be doing, or the most exotic place I could be visiting. I would choose my garden above all in terms of something that excites me and makes me feel alive and engaged. Um, so I find it a very special place. The way Wendy has chosen to interact with her backyard is the result of a lifetime's experimentation with different forms of land use. But let me back up and talk to you a little bit about farming because I mentioned I grew up for a while uh, in an intentional community on a farm. Mm -hmm. I've always loved nature, I've loved the land, and to me farming seemed to be the ideal for a life close to the land, close to nature, which to me feels very close to God. And for most of her life, that's what she practiced. Wendy and her husband Andy spent a lot of time living on farms, even a farm in Japan for a little while. But over time, I have found myself less enamored with farms. The more I learn about agriculture and the monocropping and the, the poisons and the sprays, I, I don't see farms as being the idyllic natural spaces that I used to. I feel like now when I look at farms, they look like factories or they look like industries. Or I see a destruction of nature instead of nature. 
Think of all the time and money we spend every day keeping nature at bay, Wendy says. We think we've conquered nature, but it's simply not true. And that's ironic, because despite our arrogance, nature continues to supply for us. Everything that we need is given to us on this earth. We often make the mistake to think we have to farm it. We have to plant it, we have to weed it, we have to spray it, we have to harvest it. But if we look at our weeds as a medicine chest and a nutrient source, it is literally given to us. <laughs> and the, the very weeds that we try to kill, that we spend so much time trying to control and eliminate, are what we need to sustain our bodies and to be healthy. Um, all kinds of ailments can be addressed by wild edibles. And so it's very exciting to me that a backyard or a, a mini ecosystem, either in the country or in the city, can become a life-sustaining toolbox, so to speak. Wendy showed us a book she's been reading called The Wild Wisdom of Weeds, 13 Essential Plants for Human Survival. And she said it's giving her a lot of hope that the way out of our current crisis could actually exist in plants that are usually trampled under our feet. The thing is, we don't have to impose our ideas upon the land. The land knows better what we need than we do. And I find that to be a miracle. Like that is spectacular aspect of creation. It is a miracle yeah. that it provides for us. So I'm very interested in weeds, so-called weeds. I'm interested in wild plants and what they can provide for us, what they can teach us. I'm interested in the beauty that they provide. So a lot of the plants that I have might be considered native plants, um, which around here are called weeds. <laughs> That's a radical reframing of how we typically understand our relationship with the earth. And it's similar to how Randy Woodley from episode 6 talks about the community of creation. He told us that we all have a role to play, and that perhaps our role as humans is more of a sustainer than a caretaker. The earth wants to heal itself, he said, and Wendy agrees. And that one, that area back there that is now, mm -hmm. looks like a woods, mm -hmm. um, what was that before it was a woods? Yes, that... That woods really charmed me when we were looking at the property. I thought, oh, and look, it has a woods. <laughs> but when I started identifying the plants and trying to learn what was growing back there and digging around, I immediately realized that that woods is growing on a pile of trash. And under the trash is gravel because it was an abandoned alley that people threw their trash in. And these trees that are growing on it are what people around here called weed trees, native trees that grow quickly on pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. So this beautiful woods is actually what society considers trash. <laughs> and strangely enough, Myrna had a story that was very similar to the one Wendy told us, of the earth restoring itself, even in a place full of human waste. It's a story that one of her employees had sent her just the day before we talked to her. You know, it's kind of neat to watch a, a, a space that they're working on, and even in the midst of all that trash, nature's taking it back. You know, you start, you initially see the, the insects, the grubs, the um, beetles, and, you know, every, almost always we see um, spotted salamanders, 
you know, like we st oh. because they like that wet, yeah, moist area that trash kind of collects. <laughs> and, you know, so you see those types of things. And then once you get it cleaned up, then you start seeing the deer come back. And, and she was talking about how grateful she is to be able to be part of, you know, and just the role that she's having in, in restoring the beautiful green space that is that Pittsburgh's kind of known for. It also is a great lesson that the earth wants to reclaim itself. The earth wants to reforest itself. The earth wants to heal itself. And if we leave it alone, it can do so even under remarkable circumstances, like under an alley covered with trash. Yeah. <laughs> the roots of trees can still grow up. The land remembers, creatures remember, we have forgotten. The land remembers that we are an amnesic species. Our oblivion has fooled us into believing we can build a smarter planet. Rejecting the wisdom of our ancestors, we confuse innovation as insight and conflate progress with prosperity. The land remembers that we feel powerless. The eternity of the sun is no match against the instant gratification we get from oil and gas. We invade the Earth's body because we are ashamed that we cannot control the sun. The land remembers that we are desensitized. Dirt has become synonymous with all that is unsanitary and unwanted in our environment. Afraid of dark, vibrant matter, we assign the heretical status of dirt to all human kin we don't like. It's time to meet the author of the poem we've been hearing, Jordan Luther. Just back up a little bit. All right. <laughs> I'm getting baseball signs from the corner of my eye. This is Jordan. At the time of the interview, he was a student at Vanderbilt Divinity School in Nashville, Tennessee. Let me do, let me do images of God for 200, please. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good friend of ours, and when we were in Nashville, he introduced us to his classmate, Matthew Groves, who showed up in episode two speaking about liberal denial. Yeah, I, I try to go for a wide variety of images, so lately I've been thinking of picturing like God as like a dandelion, and... Dandelions are a wildflower and, and even are often regarded as a weed, which I find fascinating in and of itself. Like, what makes a weed a weed? And when Wendy started talking about weeds, we were immediately reminded of our conversation with Jordan. And I heard the great definition from a friend of mine, Nicholas Melas, that a weed is just a beneficial plant out of place. And I, kinda, I like to think of uh, of God like a weed in the sense that God is beneficial to our lives, but maybe not always in the place where we want God to be and kind of that disruptive nature that also brings about beauty because I find dandelions are very beautiful and they have a brilliant yellow flower and they can grow in like the strangest of places. And so God kind of acts like a weed, but at the end of the day, I'm really thankful for God being a weed in my life. And something I have to look at and wrestle with and maybe think twice before I 
decide to pluck God out. When it comes to things that our society deems out of place, Jordan's thoughts go beyond just dandelions. In fact, he told us that he has a lifelong obsession with waste, where it comes from, who decides where it goes, and why we have so much of it. I think food waste deserves more attention now just simply because 40% of all food is wasted. And it's, and it's just mind-boggling to, to see like 40% of food wasted um, right beside of the crisis of hunger and poverty that so many people know here in the U.S. and around the country with like one in five who go hungry. Especially for Christians, it's like this is an everyday kind of concern. Like one doesn't just live a day without, without waste. For Jordan, food waste and waste at large has a theological component. It's actually what he wrote his master's thesis on. And it begs the question, well, what do we, what do, we do with it? Mm-hmm. If, our, if we treat the waste of our food as something that only belongs into the trash, then we're not getting the most out of it. We are kind of stopping a natural cycle of like life, death, and resurrection. And I think that's, for me, is kind of the everyday theological component. If we were able to step back, Jordan says, and see the food we eat as a part of the natural systems we exist in, then that changes everything. If we kind of look and see and start to approach even our waste as something that has a life, a death, and a resurrection, then maybe maybe we'll waste less food and, better yet, stop calling some food waste waste and actually repurpose it for compost or for meals or ferment it for future use. And I think that for me is the joy in exploring food waste theologically. In his poem, The Land Remembers, that's the one we've been hearing during transitions, Jordan has a line that reads, we assign the heretical status of dirt to any human kin we don't like. And that's an important part of Jordan's perspective, that our understanding of waste crosses over into how we view other people. I don't think we have to look any further than any kind of community that's ever been called trash or regarded as waste. Like Waste also takes on a social function. And as someone who grew up hearing a lot about white trash and fearing of becoming white trash, uh, I think that holds kind of the, the failure of current social and political systems that disregard a certain section of the population as trash and something to, um, to just sit in landfills that are communities that that are often poor and that often don't have uh, the same access to education or even just like basic needs aren't met over policed and even under policed um, all at the same time and so this has to do with how humans treat each other as well like we shouldn't regard one another as waste but really see to it that we actualize each other's potential to to have a better system to be better people on the earth. The land remembers that we are bloodthirsty. Like a needle to a vein, our waterways are dumped with toxins that take away life. Lost in our addiction, we expect to rehydrate ourselves with the same needle. The land remembers the pain of extraction. Her mountains have been blasted and rivers poisoned, all in vain pursuit of dusty minerals. We are accomplices in her forced sterilization. The land remembers 
the wounds left on her body, neighborhoods and ecosystems destroyed. Forgiving and forgetting is not an option. When I was listening to Myrna talk about the illegal dump sites on vacant properties and hillsides in Pittsburgh, I couldn't help but think of the classic tragedy of the commons problem in sociology. Picture a quaint English village whose town center, the commons, doubles as a grazing area for several flocks in the community. For every additional sheep added to a flock, the owner of that flock benefits, but because the commons is a public good, the cost, which is less grass to go around, is shared by anyone who owns a flock of sheep. The hillsides we stood on in Pittsburgh exemplify the same problem. Tossing a TV over a hillside or dumping old shingles on an abandoned lot benefits the tosser, but the cost is shared by the entire community. And on a broader scale, climate change poses the same problem. Using fossil fuels to lead a comfortable life has many benefits for the user, but the cost, a larger carbon footprint, is shared by our global community in the form of climate change. Again, out of sight, out of mind, but this time in an even more literal sense. I'm wondering what it would take for us to go through a radical reframing, like Wendy Shift in Perspective on Weeds. What if we transform the concept of waste in our collective understanding, remembering that everything is part of a cycle of life and death? Because like Jordan said, what we consider waste often contains great potential for new life. God shows up in the places that might be considered the cracks and crevices of society. So by changing how we view waste, we'd be acknowledging something that we have to face at some point. There is no away for carbon, for trash, or for people. Is it possible to build a world in which everything serves a purpose, and we don't try to shove things out of sight? Even the carbon coming out of our tailpipes, or the communities that have historically been left behind? The land remembers us, inviting us into the sacred struggle that is our collective survival. A voice calling from our inner wildness begs us to commune again with the earth. Generations past and generations future collide in today's response to this eternal plea. The land remembers us. From dust we were made to dust we shall return. We, be we belong on this earth the only home we'll ever know. Our membership comes not in the form of money, but it is a debt nonetheless. We owe the earth our affection and wonder and delight because our lives depend on it. The land remembers us. The land remembers us. The land remembers us.
Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who is also our photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Madeline Miller. Credits music is by Luke Mullet, and transition music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. Special thanks to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. And a shout out this week to Sam Weaver for the connection to Allegheny Cleanways, which sent us on a whole trail of interviews. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Check out the photo essay that goes along with this episode, previews of episodes to come, and more. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. See you next week. Thank you.